as you know, I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you very much for being here on this lovely Sunday morning. There's this thing called the sun that uh, I don't recall seeing in a while. It's nice to see it, and it's nice to see you. Thank you for being here, and we're very pleased to have with us as our speaker today a neighbor of ours, Stuart McLaren, who is the president of the White House Historical Association. Stuart's been the president of the association since 2014, and he was reminding me that he was here previously in 2014 as a speaker, so we're delighted to have him back. As president of the association, he leads its nonprofit and nonpartisan mission to support conservation and, the, and preservation at the White House without government funding. Under his leadership, the association has expanded greatly in mission reach and impact, in fundraising, educational public programming, and award-winning publications that teach the story of White House history and related retail offerings, with which we're all familiar, inspired <laughs> by that history. For more than 35 years, Stuart has held leadership roles with national, nonprofit, and educational institutions like the American Red Cross, Georgetown University here, and as we were just discussing, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation. With that, please join me in welcoming back Stuart McClellan. Well, good morning, everyone, on this beautiful uh, Sunday, December day, and thank you, Clark, for that uh, wonderful introduction. And I'd like to thank your uh, rector, Rob, who's become a good friend. He and I had the opportunity to have lunch soon after he arrived, and we're building a collaborative partnership that's ongoing from the partnership that already existed. I'd like to recognize my dear and wonderful friend, Gail West, who is on the board of directors of the White House Historical Association and is a friend to, I imagine, everybody in this room. And uh, Gail's leadership, wisdom, friendship, and support are really inspirational to me as I do my job. And I thank her and her board colleagues for the leadership that you give to our organization. And of course, we're here in this beautiful Togo West parlor and this wonderful, iconic, great American leader and this parlor that honors his life, his leadership, and his legacy. It's very special to be here with uh, Gail and Hillary in this, this room uh, named after Togo. Well, we are, as Clark mentioned, a neighbor in the president's neighborhood. Decatur House is just about a stone's throw across the park on the northwest corner, and that's where the White House Historical Association is privileged to have our base of operations. It's actually owned by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. We have a great partnership with them, but we operate this space as our own and have our events and programs that you'll hear more about today. Now, John and I are going to do a little tag team here. He's going to operate the slides, and I hope that I'm talking about the slide that he's on at the moment. So if we get catawampus a little bit, uh, we'll forgive us and we'll catch up. So we'll go with the first slide. So most Americans think about the White House, particularly in this day and age, as a political place. They see the president, or they see policymakers, or the press secretary uh, talking about matters of the day, legislation, controversies, impeachment, whatever it may be. But the White House is a much more complex place. It's a richer, deeper, more substantive place than even any of those issues on any given day. It's really a historical place. And in this city, we take that word for granted quite a bit, the history behind the place and the building. You know, I think about the billions of people around the world that will never come to our country. They certainly will never visit the White House. 
And most of them will never even meet an American in their lifetime. But they know the symbol of that house, that small white house just across the park, and how it represents American freedom and democracy around the world. And even though it's only been 227 uh, years ago since George Washington selected that specific plot of land and retained the young Irish architect James Hoban, 227 years in the span of world history is not much time. But in American history, that's a significant amount of time and a significant amount of our country's history has taken place in and through that building across the street. In the White House, as you go through these beautiful rooms, or even in the West Wing, history is all around you. Some that you see through the artifacts and the items in the rooms, and others that we only know through the stories of those who have lived there, the presidents, the first ladies, their families, and those who have worked. And you know, rarely does American breaking news connect with the history of the place. Even though, even though that does not always happen, the history is still there. The history doesn't go away. It's around you. And although the exterior walls of the uh, White House, there we go, we're going to get there. Let's go on to the next one. Got us go one more. Yeah. I missed a cue. So even though the exterior walls of the White House are painted with some regularity, there is always a space that is left unpainted to remind us of that time in 1814 when the British advanced on the White House and burned the White House. So this, uh, this unpainted portion is always left to show where the scorch marks are from the British fire. On the state floor, you can see furniture, paintings, and architectural features that tell our nation's history. For example, in the entrance hall, there's that extraordinary grand piano, which was a gift of the Steinway Company to Franklin Roosevelt. This was the 300,000th piano that Steinway made, and he gifted it to the White House. The 100,000th piano had also been gifted to Teddy Roosevelt, and that piano is now at the Smithsonian Institution. Now, this piano has been played by many celebrities over the years, and actually many presidents. Harry Truman played this piano. Richard Nixon played this piano as Pearl Bailey serenaded a group of uh, White House guests. And then there's the Blue Room. And in the Blue Room, there's that extraordinary suite of French Belanger furniture. 53 pieces that James Monroe brought with him into the White House, having been our minister to France, brought 53 pieces with him into the White House in 1817 as the first president to come into the White House after it had been rebuilt. And over time, as you'll hear me talk more about, furniture had a way of going away. And so we've been able to reclaim only 10 of the original 53 pieces. We know where three others are, but we can't uh, claim them. <laughs> we'd like to. Maybe Gail and I could go into the dark of night and, and claim them. But uh, here's an example of one of the things that we've been able to do with the White House, working with Mrs. Obama and with Mrs. Trump. The association has invested over $600,000 to restore this suite of beautiful furniture and some reproductions to fill the room in this beautiful, really exquisite Bellagé furniture and take it back to the standard that it was when it was first brought into the White House in 1817. 
In the East Room, you'll recognize the beautiful Lansdowne portrait of George Washington attributed to Gilbert Stewart and that was spirited away in the famous story of Dolly Madison fleeing the White House and the portrait was, frame was broken and the staff put it into the carriage and off it went. This item, this one portrait, is the only item that remains in the White House today that was in the White House that November day in 1800 when John and Abigail Adams first moved into the White House. This one item, the oldest item that still remains in the White House. The green, red, and blue rooms evidence the exquisite taste still today of First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, who resolved as First Lady that the White House must reflect the very best of America, including furniture, portraiture, and decorative arts. Mrs. Kennedy believed that every single piece of furniture, every detail in the public rooms should be of museum standard and museum quality. And thanks in no small part to the work of the White House Historical Association over these years, in 1988, the White House was actually accredited as a museum by the American Association of Museums. And we're very proud of that accomplishment on your behalf and to maintain it in that standard. Now, for many Americans, in fact, all of us in this room, we associate the White House with different times, activities, periods, and happenings in American history. Occasions of national unity or civic continuity, such as Inauguration Day, and this happens to be the last inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt, which was actually held at the White House. You're more familiar in your mind's eye of that iconic image of the outgoing president and first lady at the North Portico welcoming the incoming president and first lady who have stayed at Blair House traditionally and worshiped here at this church that morning. And then they go to the White House and I'd love to be, that's one occasion that I'd love to be a fly on the wall with the incoming president and first lady and the outgoing president and first lady what do they talk about? You know, like, like here's the keys and here's the, this light switch doesn't work really well. But then the presidents get in the car together and ride to Capitol Hill and the house is transformed in those few hours and the incoming president and first lady return and live in this White House with their things. There are the arrival ceremonies and this picture actually is of a arrival of a state dinner. There's also the South Lawn formal ceremonial arrivals that would typically take place earlier in the day. And state dinners are not just beautiful occasions where fancy food is served and people wear pretty clothes. These are important occasions of social diplomacy. Real work takes place at these dinners, and they are significant occasions uh, on the part of the White House. And uh, then, of course, the state, dinner, the state dinners. Go back to the state dinners. There's the state dinners themselves. And the state dining room holds about 140 people, and uh, that has been the traditional place of state dinners. In more recent times, marquees have been placed on the South Lawn to accommodate 300, 400, and 500 guests, but the state dining room is still the premier place. And Johnny wants to get us to Christmas. He's got the Christmas spirit here. So we're going to go right to the next slide. And since it is Christmas, let me delve into Christmas a little bit here. So. The Christmas decorations come down between Christmas Day and New Year's. And as soon as that happens, the planning actually begins for next year's Christmas. Quite a bit goes into this preparation for what you see when you go through the White House or when you see it depicted on the news or in magazines or in the newspaper. And every November on Thanksgiving weekend, an 
volunteer group of just over 100 comes into the White House and totally transforms that house into the magical place of Christmas on that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, one important part of that is the, you'll see depicted here, don't change it yet, John, the uh, Blue Room. And this is uh, since 1961 in the Kennedys, except for two years, the main White House Christmas tree has been in the Blue Room. That gorgeous chandelier is removed and taken down and stored away. And a tree 18 feet, six inches tall, is selected from a competition of tree growers and brought to the White House on a horse-drawn carriage Thanksgiving week. The First Lady receives it, and then the decorations begin. This year's tree happens to come from the great state of Pennsylvania. So the White House actually, when it decorates for Christmas, since Mrs. Kennedy, it's had a theme. Mrs. Kennedy started with the uh, Nutcracker theme, uh, and we'll just click through these really quickly. The Clintons uh, had a theme of, of angels. I think this is actually um, um, the crash in the East Room, which was first put in by Mrs. Kennedy, a loaned crash. And then in 1968, I believe, a permanent crash was given to Mrs. Johnson, and that has been in the White House ever since. Uh, Laura Bush in 2007 did a theme of national parks. Uh, Mrs. Obama in 2016, uh, the gift of the holidays. And then this Christmas, the Trumps, the spirit of America. And you can see here by the traditional gingerbread house, she has enhanced it with various monuments from around the country. But there are also times of very serious tragedy in our times, in our country, uh, when presidents die in office. And it's um, amazing to me to think that of our 45, uh, we've got to go way the other way, 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 way the other way, way the other way. You're getting a preview now of everything I'm going to talk about. <laughs> Uh, yeah, way, 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 way. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. One more. One more. One more. Keep going. No, no, no. No, the other way. Other way. Come on. Forward, 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 and there we are. So we also associate the time, the White House, with with tragic times in our nation's history, and it's amazing to me that uh, we've only had forty-five presidents in our nation's history, but eight of those presidents have died in office. And the White House has become the focus of collective mourning for our nation. Uh, this is the image of the John Kennedy, go back to the uh, John Kennedy image of the, uh, his uh, lying in state in the East Room of the White House. But also uh, William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Abraham Lincoln, James A. Garfield, William McKinley, Warren Harding, Franklin Roosevelt, and of course, John Kennedy. These real powerful moments uh, when the nation, the eyes of the nation are focused on the White House and it becomes the center of our collective mourning. But then there have been happy and celebratory times like in the life of any family. There may be, there's Christmas and there may be deaths, but there's also weddings and happy times. And the White House has certainly had its share of weddings. Grover Cleveland was the president who was actually married to his young bride, his much younger bride, in the Blue Room of the White House. Tricia Nixon in the Rose Garden of the White House. And the last wedding that took place in the East Room of the White House was Linda Johnson Robb and uh, Governor Chuck Robb, and they just celebrated their anniversary uh, last week. But that was the last uh, White House wedding that actually took place in the East Room.
Uh, but through all of these celebratory and solemn occasions, the White House uh, represents uh, to America and to the world uh, and even to our own country, the White House in all of its different facets and roles. Mrs. Kennedy had a quote that I, that I really love and, and uh, we're going to be using it a lot uh, this coming year as our White House ornament features the Kennedys. And Mrs. Kennedy's quote was, the White House belongs to the American people. It's the people's house. It's your house. It doesn't belong to President and Mrs. Trump or President and Mrs. Obama or the Clintons or the Bushes. The White House belongs to the people of our country and it's our privilege as the White House Historical Association to help take care of this house as, as for you uh, as America, as the people of our country. Many of you will remember the wonderful uh, televised interview with Mrs. Kennedy and uh, Charles Collingwood of CBS News, which was actually broadcast 57 years ago in 1957. And if you haven't, uh, excuse me, 57 years ago in 1962, if you haven't watched it recently, it is still available on YouTube, and it's a wonderful opportunity for you to see I'll be reminded of Mrs. Kennedy and her wonderful, wispy voice as she opens the doors of the White House and takes you into these spaces which Americans really had not seen or been exposed to. Uh, she showed uh, Charles Collingwood throughout the White House with this big, clunky camera of the day trailing behind them. Uh, all of these different things that she had found in the attic, in the basement, and that she had brought in with various collectors. And something that we cannot imagine. Imagine this with Fox and CNN and MSNBC today. Something we can't imagine. Not only did CBS air this nationwide, but so did ABC and NBC. All three major networks broadcast this television show. And it was as if all of America had been taken into the White House by First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy. And as she escorted Mr. Collingwood from room to room, her emphasis was on the early American acquisitions and restorations. Chairs, mantelpieces, tables, fabrics, items that spoke to the founding period of our country. And in that program, she actually named the specific generous Americans who had responded to her call for assistance in putting together the funds to acquire these pieces and make the White House that museum standard that it should be. Now this doesn't sound very much like Mrs. Uh, uh, Kennedy to me, but I will share it, and there are some here that may disagree with this uh, characterization. But it was reported that after she had her traditional visit with Mrs. Eisenhower, you know it's customary for the incoming First Lady to visit the White House uh, after the election and before the inauguration to see the house, to see where the family will be living. And it was reported that Mrs. Kennedy remarked at that time that the White House looked like a hotel that had been furnished by a January furniture store clearance sale. <laughs> but by the end of this CBS show, through her efforts, no one could think that the White House would ever look like that again. Mrs. Kennedy won the hearts of the nation that night and transformed the curatorial aspects of the, as the, White, of the White House and how they are managed today. The things that she put in place, the curator, the White House Historical Association, the Committee for the Preservation of the White House, these elements are still what governs historic preservation at the White House today. Her legacy is strong and clear and living in the White House that you see in 2020.
prior to the Kennedy administration, not yet, uh, uh, new occupants of the White House could actually do anything they liked uh, with what they found. There was no regular funding by the Congress for the upkeep of the White House, so renovations, redecorations were very sporadic, and the funds were dependent upon which individual president could afford to do something. Uh, Congress was reluctant uh, to, do so, to do that, and so if a family had the means and the resources, then they would do it, and if not, things were just would go on as they were. First families who actually wanted new furniture and furnishings often had to secure the new by selling the old, and that's what happened with that wonderful suite of Bellinger furniture I told you about. Uh, B President Buchanan came along in the 1850s, and it had become worn and tired by that time, and he didn't want it anymore, so off it all went. Mary Todd Lincoln uh, is reported to have sold White House items to raise funds after President Clinton left her, or President Clinton, President Lincoln, uh, uh, his passing left her nearly destitute. Chester A. Arthur, this is staggering to think about. President Arthur auctioned off 24 wagon loads of White House furnishings and china and objects that are for the large part lost to history or maybe in some great-great-grandmother's attic somewhere and unknown yet to us. Presidential china uh, would break and disappear and people would have a way of taking things with them over time. And so to acquire new things, presidents and first families would sell the old and bring in the new. So by the time you get up to the Kennedys, you have a collection of a hodgepodge of things that had been acquired, and a lot of these wonderful Americana items were dispersed and out into the country. So since our association's founding in 1961 and our work with Mrs. Kennedy, the association has really persevered in to provide private funds, as Clark said, we have no government funding at all, uh, private funds to advise every first lady each first family takes on two, four, maybe five projects that they want to be their legacy in the White House. So just a couple of these. Uh, with Laura Bush, she, uh, we worked with her to take the Lincoln bedroom. As you know, it was not a bedroom during Lincoln's presidency. It was his office, a cabinet space. But wanted to take it back to what it was believed to look like when it first became a bedroom. So we, would, we did the research on that. We did the funding of this. And this is the depiction of the, the Lincoln bedroom that exists today. Uh, she also did the library as a librarian. She was very interested in the library space, and so the association funded the library. The next picture, and this is a wonderful picture of the old family dining room, which is just off the state dining room on the state floor. Mrs. Obama wanted a space to depict more contemporary art. To, to, an artist to have a work in the White House collection, the artist must be deceased and the work of art must be 25 years old or older. You don't want a living artist pounding their chest and saying, my work is in the White House. Of course, the only exception to that would be the President and First Lady's portraits, which must be painted by living artists. But this, um, <laughs> this uh, old family dining room uh, became a place, and you'll see the beautiful Alma Thomas colored uh, painting between the two windows from the 1960s Washington color school. She's the first African-American female artist to have a work of art in the White House. That's in uh, Rauschenberg over on the left. The carpet is actually inspired by Albers, and there are two other Albers paintings in that room. But it became a gallery for 20th century art. And the more we get into the 21st century, the great American artists of the late 20th century are becoming eligible to be in the White House collection. The, um, let's, we can turn it. I don't know what's the next. Uh, uh, Mrs. Trump. 
Uh, we've done several things with her already, and one is to open the family theater, which is in the East Colonnade, just as you enter the White House on the public tour, and that's traditionally been closed to tours. But Mrs. Trump opened it up so that uh, visitors could see uh, this family theater, and it's uh, uh, presidential families will watch movies in there, Super Bowls, sporting events, but it's now available on the public tour. We've also done with her uh, very recently, another project is the refurbishment of the Red Room. Uh, the walls of the Red Room are fabric and the light comes in the windows from the south and uh, has pretty much bleached the uh, western walls of that room to where they were almost pink if you looked at it by comparison. And so uh, this past year we totally replaced the fabric of the same color red in that room and uh, the draperies uh, in that room as well and this year we'll be supporting the reupholstery of the furniture in that room. So the red room will be totally restored after this year working with Mrs. Trump. Uh, today, uh, thanks to Mrs. Kennedy, the White House, as I mentioned, has its own curator that we work with very closely and curatorial staff. The furnishings and the appointments are exactly to the standard that she envisioned. And it is, we believe, the very best of America. And this is really uh, where we play a strong role. Our role is literally the living legacy of Mrs. Kennedy, her vision and her drive. Now, one reason that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, that the White House looked as it did when the Kennedy was arrived was that the Congress was reluctant to appropriate money for this purpose. Now, they would make sure the House was structurally sound for certain, but not the, the elements that would decorate the inside of the White House. Incidentally, Mrs. Kennedy hated the word decoration. She didn't like that word used. <laughs> but by the time the Truman years came along, um, the White House was in somewhat of a disrepair. We had been through the Great World War. There had been the Depression. Uh, President Roosevelt and President Truman had both been told that the White House needed significant infrastructure work. This became clear to President Truman one evening when his daughter Margaret was playing the piano up in the residence and the leg of the piano literally went through the floor into the ceiling below. Uh, he was warned that uh, when there were events in the East Room and people would walk on the residence level that the chandeliers would sway in the East Room. And you can just imagine you know, a state dinner or something, these chandeliers, these beautiful bohemian glass Teddy Roosevelt chandeliers crashing on the guests below. So he finally realized that for the good of the country, the good of the White House, the good for the presidents that would follow, the White House needed to go through a major renovation. So indeed, during the Truman years, the Trumans uh, moved to Blair House for four years, and the entire interior of the White House was gutted. It was taken literally down two floors to the dirt below. All of the timber beams that had been in there since the 1814 restoration uh, were replaced with modern infrastructure. And, uh, and uh, you could go on to a couple of, uh, couple of others. You can just see, uh, this is a great story here. President Truman, it was really important to him that the exterior of the walls of the White House, the white walls stay intact so that to the world, the White House was there. It wasn't under repair, under construction, and it certainly wasn't hollow, but the walls were still in place. And so when it, you had to get equipment like this uh, vehicle here in, um, the contractors wanted to carve out a part of the stone wall to take it through, and uh, President Truman said, no, we won't be doing that. So they had to take them apart, take them through the doors, and then reassemble them inside 
And then they were able to take them out to dig out underneath and come out a different way. But it was quite, um, uh, quite, a, quite a process uh, for this um, uh, renovation. And you can see as they're bringing it to conclusion uh, and, and uh, bringing the um, uh, house back to the, the that's the uh, Truman uh, Blue Room, uh, as it was refurbished after they moved back in. So it was Mrs. Kennedy's uh, solution uh, to once the, the there were the Eisenhowers and then the Kennedys came in, and the Kennedys, or excuse me, the Eisenhowers and the Trumans were not wealthy uh, people, and so they really used what was available in the White House, and it looked very nice, and it was certainly appropriate. But Mrs. Kennedy really had a heart for restoration and the early American um, uh, collection and bringing back to the White House as many of the original items as she could. And remember, she was only 32 years old when she became First Lady of the United States. And she was First Lady for only three years. But an extraordinary three years in what became the process and the, and the policies and the procedures for taking care of the White House. Um, she didn't go to Congress, as her predecessors had done, without much success. She went to the kinds of people that museums go to, to collectors, to curators, to those who uh, know where objects are and what type of objects would be uh, most appropriate in the White House, prominent individuals. And she created our organization that I have the privilege to, to lead today, uh, working with Gail and our other board members. So by now you have the idea. The government takes care of the building and the infrastructure. Great organizations like the National Park Service take care of the beautiful uh, grounds around the White House and the maintenance of the White House itself. But Mrs. Kennedy anticipated that a private partner would be needed to fund these things, and that's when she uh, created the White House Historical Association to maintain the state floor rooms, those beautiful rooms that we've talked about today, as well as some non-public historic rooms that we also support, such as the Lincoln Bedroom, the Yellow Oval Room on the residence level, the Queen's Bedroom. But we also provide funding for the acquisition of furnishings and decorative arts for the permanent White House collection. Uh, now you can no longer take things or sell things from the White House. Things are assessed into a collection like a great museum. Um, and we fund the, the acquisition. I'll get a call from the curator and something would have shown up. Uh, we recently had a call that uh, William King, a Georgetown cabinet maker, there were 24 chairs acquired by James Monroe that were in the White House collection. They were all dispensed with, and the White House has three of those 24 chairs. A fourth one was recently identified, was verified to be original to the White House collection, and we had the privilege of acquiring that, and it's presently undergoing conservation and will be brought onto the, the state floor likely this spring. So we, we hear about things, and uh, the, if those are verified, and the White House would like us to acquire those, uh, we certainly do. We do the, uh, we fund the presidents and first ladies' portraits that are done after each administration. That is not a government expense. Uh, from time to time, as state China is acquired by a first family, the association uh, since the time of Nancy Reagan, uh, the China acquired since the Reagans has been funded by the association. It gives us the opportunity, as I spoke of earlier, to talk about the importance of um, uh, social diplomacy and how state dinners are important uh, to the business of our country. So they are pretty things and they are beautiful things and often the China symbolizes some architectural or historical element of the White House, but these are elements of 
important work that the President and First Lady do on behalf of our country. Um, to date, we've had the privilege of contributing uh, over $53 million back to the White House in acquisitions and work to support the People's House. Now, I'd be remiss if I did not mention another part of our important work that we do uh, at, at the White House, and that's our educational mission. And this was also inspired by Mrs. Kennedy. So we have uh, education programs focused on K through 12 uh, levels, our uh, teacher institutes that you see here where we bring teachers in from all over the country. Um, go ahead, John, to the next slide and uh, have wonderful training sessions with them in the summertime. Uh, we have a partnership, had a partnership with the Washington National Spaceball Team where uh, that's, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, that's eight funny looking people there, including me, go back. Uh, with this, this was a wonderful program for, for three straight seasons at all 81 home baseball games. It was an interactive quiz on White House history. Uh, so people would, uh, would uh, participate and uh, answer these White House trivia questions, which was great fun. Go ahead to the next one. Um, this is, we have a lot of uh, programs and lectures and symposia. One program I'll mention that's uh, we're really excited about that we're partnering with St. John's Church. In, on February the 5th, we will raise the uh, curtain on an initiative that we'll be undertaking over the next year focused on enslaved persons in the president's neighborhood. At Decatur House, we have the last remaining example of how enslaved persons lived in the president's neighborhood in the 19th century, early 19th century. And uh, we, perhaps one of the last remaining examples in all of Washington is how they lived in Washington, DC. That's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is those enslaved to build the White House out here in Lafayette Park, lived and worked in this park. You may remember in May of 2016, First Lady Michelle Obama spoke at a commencement address in New York and then later that summer at the Democratic Convention and she said, I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. Both occasions our website virtually crashed, people wanting to know about that information. So we're going to tell those stories. We're going to, to the degree we can identify those people, uh, talk, tell their stories and talk about them and revive their legacy about their work in the park. And then a third part of that story, which is critical for us to tell as part of this program, will be those who were enslaved to our early American presidents and actually lived and worked in the White House itself. So we're very excited about this. It's our privilege. It's part of our education mission to tell these stories. And we will unveil that with the program here on February the 5th with a conversation with David Rubenstein and Lonnie Butch. And then we'll have all kinds of programs and activities and publications that tell those uh, stories. So that's an example of the type of programming uh, that we do. The White House Visitor Center is over on um, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in the ground floor of the Commerce Building. It's a partnership with the uh, National Park Service. It is a Smithsonian caliber interactive museum. Uh, if you have, you can go to the next slide as well. If you have the opportunity to um, visit the White House, if you're coming to Washington, this is a perfect complement to it. If you don't, uh, this is a great experience to tell you how the White House is the home to the president and his family, the office to the president and his staff, the ceremonial stage upon which we receive our most important visitors from around the world, and also the museum uh, that I've talked about. We also publish uh, extraordinary books, and I love our books, and I'm very proud of our books. 
Um, in fact, and uh, we have a quarterly magazine. In fact, I'm going to give you a copy of our most one of our recent quarterly magazines that you'll get to take with you. But our publications program began in 1962 with First Lady uh, Jacqueline Kennedy again, who had visited the White House with a teenager, as a teenager, and was a little concerned that there was no guidebook like you would get at a great American museum. So first order of business for us was to publish a guidebook, and we still publish that today. It's in its 24th edition, and this is an example of how it is today. And I actually, we're privileged to have Mrs. Kennedy's copy of the very first guidebook that she was given, and you can see the similarity, even the book cover and how we've maintained it. But uh, after her passing, we were honored to obtain this, her personal copy uh, of the guidebook. And so we published these wonderful books, and they're all available online or at our shop uh, just down the street. Um, in addition to philanthropy uh, our, and our book sales, we do have uh, wonderful retail products. You're all familiar with the White House Christmas ornament since 1981 uh, with Mrs. Reagan. And I often joke, if I'd been in the room when somebody came with Mrs. Reagan and said, let's do a Christmas ornament, I would have thought, okay, fine. But I'm so glad they did because that has been the bread and butter of our organization <laughs> ever since. And it's also a teaching tool and we get to present a different president every year. It started, wonderful thing Mrs. Reagan did, we don't have to choose which president we're featuring every year. She chose George Washington to begin, and we're working through the sequence. This year is Dwight Eisenhower, and you'll see the little ornament here. He was the first American president to use a helicopter for presidential travel. He was made by the Sikorsky Company in Connecticut, the Lockheed Martin Company, and is still made by them today. And so this is the ornament that tells that story of President Eisenhower and next year will be uh, President Kennedy. So in that, uh, there's another example of the ornament, the early, very early ornament. Uh, go ahead. Uh, and there's, uh, that was Coolidge. Just keep scrolling, we'll get through these quickly. That was Hoover. There was a Christmas Eve fire in the West Wing and engine company number one of Washington, D.C. put out the fire. Uh, this is Truman, the south portico of the White House, the Truman balcony. Uh, and then, of course, this ornament, uh, this year's ornament. And then. Uh, to close, um, I want to take us back to that CBS program with Charles Collingwood. And President Kennedy, uh, at the conclusion of that program, shared this. And I find this really compelling and inspirational to my work. Kennedy said, I have always felt that American history is sometimes a dull subject. There's so much emphasis on dates. But I think if young people can come here and see this building, alive, and in a sense touch the people who've been here, then they'll go home more interested, and I think they'll become better Americans. And then he concluded, and that's why I'm glad that Jackie is making the effort that she's making. I know other First Ladies have done it, and I know that those who come after us will continue to try to make this great house the centerpiece of American historical life. And this is the mission of the White House Historical Association that we continue to help every president and first lady. Our mission is a great privilege and it's important work and we honor Mrs. Kennedy and her vision and our nation's story in all that we do and we hope to do that for generations to come. And so we are the trustees of that sacred legacy and it's a privilege and a pleasure to tell you about that today and share a glimpse into our work and uh, we hope that you'll follow us on social media. We have a treasure trove of resources on our website. And uh, there's so much more that I could tell you. I love my job, and I say I could work here the rest of my life and not know all there is to know. So every day for me 
is a learning opportunity. So although we're an educational organization and we teach, I get to learn too, and that's the best part of my job. So. <laughs> asked that question and uh, the question was uh, what do we know about enslaved persons being used to build St. John's Church. Uh, we've actually visited with the church. We want to make um, to be helpful if we can in telling that part of the story if there is a part of the story to be told. Certainly they were aware of the mix and involved with the mix of the neighborhood and the community but we have had conversations and we'll have more so to help unpack that story. I uh, honestly don't know the full answer to that. Anyone else? No questions. Wow. Yes. How how often do you interact with the White House staff? Like, what is your day to day job like? Uh, great question. Um, so, sometimes it's. Thank you so much. Sometimes it's frequently. Um, I can be over there three or four or five times a week, and sometimes I'm not over there at all. Traditionally, we work with the a chief usher of the White House, which is excuse me, which is like the general manager of a hotel. That role oversees the housekeeping staff and the florist and the cooks and the electricians and the plumbers and the painters. Uh, work very closely with that person. The curator, the person, she and her staff actually manage all of the objects that are in the collection and maintain them and take care of them. Then on the First Lady staff, her Chief of Staff, the Social Secretary, uh, her Press Secretary sometimes, uh, those would be our primary relationships. But the First Lady, whoever that may be, is always very involved in setting the course of what those people do. And they send over to us every year a list, and Gail's very involved in this process, a list of things that need to be done at the White House. So it's not only acquiring beautiful things, but it's taking care of uh, things that have uh, become worn or worn out that need to be refurbished and replaced, and whether it's resurfacing of historic doors or um, glass, uh, or even one of the things that we're going to be doing this uh, this coming year is that, sorry, that beautiful large um, gla uh, glass um, light that's under the north portico. Mm -hmm. the, there were originally four of those, two on each front of the north portico under Teddy Roosevelt and they were taken down, and one was plant put under the north portico, and that has to undergo significant refurbishment this year. So things like that that you don't really think about but that need to be done. And one follow-up, can you tell us anything about the personal residence of the White House? Sure, sure. And yeah, that's their home. And upstairs, uh, upstairs the um, it's about half of the the top level of the White House. We look at the White House and think of it as three stories, but there are actually six levels in the White House of different mezzanines. And what we think of it as the top floor, they have about half of that on the west side that's their apartment, if you will. And they can do anything they want to in that. They're given a catalog 
of things that are in the collection that they can furnish those rooms with if they want to, or if they have things from their own home, they could bring that into that space, but they could do live as they choose to live in that space. That's their home. Yes, ma'am. How is art selected for the White House, right. and does it change? It does. There are obviously more items in the collection that can be on display at any one time, and they do change from time to time, sometimes for conservation. Uh, for example, in the green room, there's traditionally the large portrait of Benjamin Franklin, uh, which hangs over the mantle that was a gift of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Annenberg, Ambassador and Mrs. Annenberg. That went out for conservation and is now on a loan to the portrait gallery. What is that? And, and uh, um, hanging above the mantle is uh, a fabulous portrait of Edith Roosevelt, uh, which is there. So sometimes they change, but usually on the state floor, things pretty much stay in place. The National Gallery of Art uh, can loan items to the family for their residence upstairs, but everything that you see on the state floor, all of that art belongs to the White House. Why does it or doesn't it? it does. Well, a cornerstone was put in in uh, 1792, and that cornerstone has not been found since. Uh, even during the Truman restoration, efforts were made to uh, discover the cornerstone, and it has not been found. There are many rumors and stories and lore about it, but it has it has never been found. Yes, sir. How is it used today? Typically it is used for small gatherings. Um, uh, the president may have a lunch or a, a breakfast meeting with a visiting delegation. Um, traditionally that room uh, has been closed and used as a almost like a catering kitchen for big events on the state floor. So even with the main holiday receptions this year, that room had to be closed so it could be used as sort of a catering kitchen for the events on the state floor. Um, but it's, it's used functionally for small lunches and dinners. Yes? Was the, how was the association involved uh, in the decision to make the visitation of the White House maybe less public or more through the, the senator that you know, represents? Yeah, really great question. Uh, and that goes to 9-11. After 9-11, the White House was closed to tours for two years. And when they resumed, rather than getting your tickets through us, which you used to do at the White House Visitors Center, uh, you, uh, Mrs. Bush instilled a program where you get it through your member of Congress or through your ambassador if you're visiting internationally. And, and I like that system because I think it makes it open to every member of Congress and people from all over the country able to approach their member of Congress about visiting. Every White House wants to ratchet up the number of visitors that are able to come into the White House, and we support that too. The more, the better, uh, we think. Um, but we we like that system, and that seems to have worked uh, worked out very well. Yes, sir. What percent of the you have all this collection of art and furniture? What percent is actually displayed at any given time versus what's kind of stored away? Where is it? Where yeah. is it set? Uh, there's a, a a support facility in the suburbs which warehouses this. It's uh, very secure, as you would imagine, and the things are maintained there. It's where things also go to be refurbished uh, or conserved if they need to be. Uh, I can't tell you an exact number percentage, but I can say I would guess, uh, just from being familiar with that, that site, it's probably 10% of the collection is on display at any one time. Yes, sir. So the preservation efforts extended the 
Yeah, another great question. The Blair House is actually owned and operated by the State Department. Uh, the Secretary of State and the Chief of Protocol have jurisdiction over Blair House. We work with them closely with their curator, but we do not have anything to do with them. And we do go into the West Wing. We'll be involved with refurbishments of the Oval Office, the Cabinet Room, the Roosevelt Room, but not the office of the other offices of the West Wing or of the Eisenhower Building. Last question. Anybody have a last question? Uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> do you have your own staff of researchers, or do you rely on researchers around the country, or how do you? Both. We have a wonderful staff of uh, PhD historians. We have a digital library and librarians. We have a treasure trove of images that the White House staff, the White House Press Corps rely on. If there's a movie, uh, for example, Steven Spielberg, when he did his Lincoln movie, wanted images of the White House at the time of, of Lincoln. So we did a major research project for him and provided those images to him. So we have our own human as well as um, a collection resources that we can make available. We have a great partnership with the White House Correspondents Association to be a source of them for background on stories. But we also rely on friends who are historians uh, and experts around the country. For example, with our quarterly magazine, which you'll get a copy of, um, the contributors to that are typically those that we have a relationship with outside of our own organization. So we're trying to grow that with as many experts as we can. Everyone, please join me. Thank you very much. This is really, really Thank you. Love you. Thank you. Thank you.